Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Prejudicial or uh, condescending, I hope you would give me grace, uh, because that is not my intent at all. I know that it's a serious matter. So serious, in fact, that we're going to split this into two weeks, you lucky, lucky people. We're going to end with, uh, right before we get to Horace Mann, who was an incredible person himself. But we want to start by uh, talking about the fact that it can be a divisive issue uh, that can get us in trouble quickly as we talk with others. I remember one time I was hired by an individual who uh, was adamantly opposed to homeschooling, and he would just get red in the face and veins on his neck would pop out when he talked about this. Good old Dr. David Todd, my previous boss. Well, we want to talk about the scriptures, and specifically, we're going to start with the Bible history of education. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, God in his wisdom, in the midst of giving the Decalogue to his people and describing the two great commandments that we should love God, serve and revere him, but also we have a responsibility toward man, In Deuteronomy 6, after the reciting of the Decalogue, there is another passage that's very familiar, Deuteronomy 6, 7 through 9. It's the Shema. You all know it. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. If you ever notice, my wife doesn't wear a lot of jewelry, but she has a mezuzah that she wears around her neck. And a mezuzah is a small container that contains a portion of the Decalogue. And Jews would post that on their doorposts, and as they enter and as they leave, they would kiss the mezuzah. I found that when I was in New York City in the uh, jewelry district, went to a little Jewish jewelry store. I saw that uh, in the front window, and I knew exactly what it was. But that passage has two very important uh, emphases. First, it's not a suggestion given for our consideration. It is a command from the God of the universe. Second, it clearly delineates the responsibility of the parents, not the government, not the village, not taking a village. It is primarily the responsibility of the parents, and it cannot be passed on to anyone else. So again, a serious matter. Education in ancient Israel was varied. It was varied. First, it did take the responsibility of the parents. And it changed. Education of youth and of adults changed over time. Uh, Throughout political history, throughout the incursion of different cultural emphases and pressures, education changed, and rightly so. During the time of the judges, the 12th and 13th centuries B.C., or up to the time of the Maccabees, the 2nd century B.C., it changed because they were being increasingly affected not only by the outside cultures of the land, but the Hellenistic culture that encroached upon the whole region. So, if we look at the pre-exilic time, the pre-exilic time of the history of the Jews, you find that primarily 
teachers and par parents, uh, parents were the primary teachers. Education was the, focused on the children, uh, agrarian occupations, farming, tent making, making tools, fishing, and of course, the Shema, the laws of God. Moses was highly educated. And this is, Moses provides us a very good explanation and uh, example of those who were influenced by outside culture. You know the story. The command to the midwives was that they should kill the baby boys, right? And Miriam um, and, you know, Moses' mother were responsible for maintaining and keeping that child safe. And so he was raised where? He was raised in a palace. Matter of fact, if you look to Acts chapter 20, chapter 7, look, turn there very quickly if you would, because I believe that this is quite illustrative. Acts 7, verses 20 through 22. And you read this. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had set, been set outside in the reeds, right, in the rushes, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. So, question to you. What influences, with regard to education, did Moses have? Pagan? What else? Jewish? Jewish? Joel? He knew all about all the other gods, all the cultural issues, right? He was in the seat of learning, being with Pharaoh's daughter, and even being called a, a son of Pharaoh's daughter. Did he have the influence, and what was the influence from Israel, from Judaism? His mom, right? Did he have an identity as a Jew? Did that impact him? Can you think of any event? What event? When they were fighting, right? The Egyptian and the Jew, right? He felt a strong nationalistic and ethnically sensitive pain that he struck out. There was an influence there. He wasn't just bowled over by the culture. And his mom and his sister saw to it that there was an influence there. The education served Moses well, especially as he led uh, and... Who knows how God used his thinking and his mind being shaped through his educational process in developing and being the author through the Holy Spirit, of course, of the civil laws and codes for the nation of Israel. Science, law, architecture, writing, all of it influenced him. The need to be able to read was important, and it continued through that period. Now you understand Solomon's wisdom as well. Here's a famous picture of Solomon being asked about the two babies, remember? The one that died and the other, uh, the other uh, child was being fought against by two mothers. And as, if you look there, you'll see the fellow with the, uh, uh, it looks like he has a diaper on. You'll see he has a sword. Remember? This is the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon prayed to God for wisdom, didn't he? And not for riches or honor, but God gave him both. The prayer for wisdom was very pleasing to God because there is more value in education, particularly regarding the fear of the Lord than there is in all the gold mines and treasure houses of the world. If you go to Kings, turn to Kings very quickly. We're going to just look at a couple of quick passages. First Kings chapter 4 and verse 30. First Kings 4 and 30. And in it you see 
the record that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. David made certain that his son was given an incredible, wide education. Go to 1 Kings 10.23. Again, a testimony to his education and wisdom. So King Solomon, 1 Kings 10.23, King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. Now, of course, we would look back on his life and say, all those wives, not so wise. Not so good. Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 1.16. Solomon himself says this. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is not just tooting his own horn. We know that there was a queen that came, visited him, and she was amazed by his wisdom. So, Education was a critically important part of the life of the people of Israel. Now, in the exile, 586 and beyond, period of about 70 years or so, Jerusalem had been destroyed, and the Hebrews deported to where? Where did they go? What region? Babylon, right? The Babylonian captivity, 70 years' time. Now, during this time, formal education really began to be codified and emerged as a systematic applied approach. Why would this have been important at that time? The Babylonians come in, Nebuchadnezzar and his crew. They bring people out of the land. They leave a remnant back, but they take people, put them in Babylon. Why was it critically important for the Jews to systematize the education? Say it again. They were all being taught the same thing. Good. What else? Say what? So they don't revolt. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Were you reading my notes? No. Our sister said that there was a critically important time of influence that Babylon would have upon the, the, the Jewish people, especially the children, right? And Daniel and his three friends are the prime example of that, right? And this is where it gets wonderfully encouraging. If you are a parent and you have children in public schools, or if you are a teacher in a public school system, you really want to talk and think about the wisdom and the education of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Because it is a powerful story. Daniel was only a teenager when he was brought into captivity with the rest of the captives of Israel. Knowledge of God began with these men at the giving of their names. All right, so if you go into names, what do the names mean? Daniel. I have an advantage of knowing that. So, what does your name mean? Oh, come on. God is my judge. God is my judge. L E L is always God. 
Daniel, God is my judge. Now you know. And next, next week, Daniel is going to, Dan Joseph is going to come up here and sing, Dare to be a Daniel for us. Hananiah, who became known as Shadrach, uh, means Jehovah is gracious or Jehovah has favored me. Mishael, who became Meshach, means overwhelmed by God or who is like God. And Azariah, Abednego, means Jehovah is my helper. After birth, their parents, with the help of others in the covenant community, trained them in God's character, ways, and works. God works in human history to accomplish his purposes. And now we catch a glimpse in the scriptures of this incredible story of how God used these youths in Babylon 2,500 years ago. These are names that are synonymous with dens packed with lions and furnaces ablaze with fire, right? And this great golden image of Nebuchadnezzar. Besides their names, besides their names, what was the foundation that these four young men had as they went into Babylon and as they were raised in that culture? What was the good foundation they had then? <clears throat> they were set apart and taught. Yep. They were saved. They had a knowledge of the sovereign grace of God through the sacrifice and the atoning work that God provided. They understood. They, Joel. <clears throat> they were taught, right? The Shema, remember? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord our God with all your heart, soul, mind, body. They were taught that twice a day. All right? And remember, it was systematic. It became very important that these young men and others would have not only the festivals, right? The Feast of Booths, Passover. Well, they're not the Passover yet, are they? Or the Feast of Booths. <laughs> but they would have the remembrances of these things that God had instructed the parents to teach their children. In Deuteronomy 6, they would know about the uh, Shema. In Genesis 18, they would know about the covenant, right? What was the co covenant in Deuteronomy 8, uh, Genesis 18? Which covenant was that? The Abrahamic, yeah, the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, For I have chosen him, Abraham, in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And, again, remember this is post-exile. Well, actually, they did have the, uh, my mistake, they did have the Passover and everything else. Um, <clears throat> um, Psalm 78. Go to Psalm 78 real quick. Because, again, they would know this. The Psalms had been written. And this is powerful and very popular psalm. Yeah, that's right. We're going we're gonna to get there. Psalm 78, 1 through 8. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known. And our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. An appropriate verse to remember during Mother's Day, huh? 
that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. Because if there's anything those people in the exile learned, they learned this, to not fall into idolatry. So what do these men, young men, understand because of their biblical training? Well, they understood the nature and character of God. They understood the laws of God. They understood the works of God. What could these men do because of that training? What could these men do because of that training? Discern. Discern, yes. They had discern. They had the ability to judge between good and evil. Excellent. What else? John and Rose. Exactly. They, they talked with the authorities in wisdom, with grace and tact. And, excellent. What else? Pardon? Live in holiness. Exactly. There was, Daniel was blameless. They could find nothing about him except in regard to his own following of his law. Right? Nebuchadnezzar wanted to use these highly qualified men to serve him in his purposes. So he enrolled them at uh, University of Babylon, Feta Kappa, whatever. <clears throat> he also changed her name from Daniel to Belteshazzar, Hananiah to Shadrach, Mishael to Meshach, and Azariah to Abednego, all named after pagan gods. By the way, did you ever notice Daniel was really not known as Belteshazzar? He was always known as Daniel. I got to say, I'm just saying. Good name. <laughs> Dan Jost agrees. Somebody have a green Highlander that's parked under the basketball court? If so, the alarm's going off. I'm sorry? You may want to check it out. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. So, besides the... Uh, so, imagine the impact the city of Babylon had on these young men. It was the most magnificent city in the world. One of the um, architectural wonders of the world was there. Anybody remember what it was? The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, right? It was an artificial mountain of receding terraces of flowers and trees... It was also an incredible military power, but a financial and commercial power as well. It was a center of astrology, occult, and black magic. Nebuchadnezzar's strategy was to use the physical, psychological, and intellectual powers of the Babylonian world to make these men serve him, not the God of Israel. Two worldviews were in conflict, but men of faith and character will resist the conforming influences of the world. Now, that's why I say that thinking about this and thinking about this issue of education and the impact on our family biblically and considering what God has done with people and young people who were in an educational system and a culture that had a great desire to impact them is beneficial and encouraging to us. Regardless of the educational choices that you and I make, in our families, there is great hope. 
you look at what God has done with these men in the midst of Babylon, and you and I cannot help but have our confidence increase that God can raise up children under our home and influence for his good, his glory, and for our delight. Think about what the scriptures say about Daniel. Let's go to the book of Daniel, all right? And our sister has already alluded to one. Daniel chapter 1. There are a few verses I want to look at with you. Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8. Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself, showing wisdom and tact, respect to the authorities that were above him, even if the authorities above him were not coming from a Judeo mindset. Look at verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. An amazing thing, especially in the occult setting that he was in. And you know how God used that when dealing with Nebuchadnezzar, right? It also shows that, like the Apostle says in the New Testament, that we have nothing that we've not been given. If you and I have the ability to understand any truth from God's Word, or any truth about God's world, it is because of His grace. We cannot be boastful because of that. Look at verse 20, Daniel 1.20. And here's the ten times better passage. <clears throat> As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them, all four men, ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in his realm. And these men most probably had an influence upon those wise men to the point that when our Savior was incarnate, that that memory of their presence and the understanding and appreciation of Jewish scriptures was carried over so that the Magi coming from the East were probably influenced by these men. So for parents who may not be able to afford either Christian school or can't homeschool or can't send their kids to a Christian university, there's hope. There's hope. Look at Daniel chapter 2 and verse 48. The wisdom and education of these men exceeded that of everyone in Nebuchadnezzar kingdoms of magicians and enchanters. It's no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar had no one better to put in charge. Daniel 2.48. Then the king promoted Daniel, gave him many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and a chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Look at Daniel 11 and verse 32. Daniel 11 and verse 32. What an incredible promise here. <clears throat> The people who know their God will display strength and take action. 
Isn't that great? Isn't that great? <clears throat> and so in Daniel 3, you find these three young men being told that they have to bow down or they're going to be cast into the furnace. What do they say? Okay. Let's go. Be it known unto you, O king, that our God is able to save us. But even if he don't, we will not bow down. A lot of chutzpah, huh? A lot of confidence in the living God. And I think that since they were trained in the Torah, since they were trained in the Talmud, since they were trained in the first five books, the Pentateuch, they understood the history of this land. Where did Babylon come from? Babel, Genesis 11, right? Genesis 11. These men knew that this region, that this city, that this kingdom was a kingdom of confusion. And so they could come in objectively with a firm foundation of knowledge of who God is and what God is able to do and to not be decimated. <clears throat> so, Proverbs 9 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. These men had that. So, <clears throat> if we were to ask the question, Today, in our land of confusion, in our Babel, in our Babylon, we know the lies back then, right? We know the lies that were trying to be imposed upon Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What are the lies that are being foisted upon people today in the name of education? Evolution. What else? Say it again. Gender identity. <clears throat> yeah, we don't need God. The idea of God or the need of God is past. Science has replaced God. Lisa? Yeah, ignore everything your parents teach you. Wow. There is no God, no absolute standards. Happiness and pleasure are the goals of life. We are products of time and chance. Sin is normal, not to be resisted. Chance and luck govern our lives. You and I can have hope for our children, our grandchildren. Yeah? Within many different cultures and many different educational constructs. Well, let's look at the post-exilic time, shall we? Post-exile, 500 B.C. and beyond. Preserving the nation through religious education became more important during the post-exilic Judaism so that the nation would not fall back into the idolatry that led to the exile. An elaborate system of education was constructed. Priests remained a primary educational role, but at that time is when the scribes rose up. And the scribes were not only involved in religious tasks, but they became um, involved in things like notaries, uh, law, uh, secretaries. Um, some were involved in medicine. In that time period, 
500 BC to time of Christ, education within Judaism became universal and compulsory for Jewish boys and men. There were educational opportunities for women as well. The pedagogy, the training of children, was shaped because of a desire to train children and, to, and, and the nation to be holy before God. There were two great names at that time. Simon ben Shittach, who was a, daughter, uh, a brother of Queen Alexandria, about 70 to, uh, 80 to 70 BC, uh, he declared elementary education compulsory. Philo, who was a first century uh, Jewish philosopher, talked about the synagogues as being houses of instruction. There was a Joshua ben Galama, who was a high priest for about uh, 60 AD. Uh, he established that teachers should be appointed for every district and that children should be brought to the appointed teacher at the age of six or seven years. And I asked my wife, who, as you all know, is a teacher, a very competent one at that, that this six-year-old time period seems to be universal across cultures and time. That at that time, a systematic regula regulated practice of education is taking place. I said, is there some reason for that? Is it biological? Is it developmental? Is it you know, intellectual or emotional maturity? Is there a readiness? I don't know, but it seems to be something that keeps popping up. Now, we all, of course, all of our children are above average, right? Of course they are. It's Mother's Day. Come on. My son taught himself to read at three years old. Of course, he said things like, instead of, he said, he asked about the plagues of Egypt instead of the plagues of Egypt, and, you know, Shows you how good a teacher we are. <clears throat> but our children are, of course, all above average. They were before six years old. Well, Paul was one of these period people uh, during that time. Paul is a scholar and philosopher, highly educated. His, uh, his teacher's name was what? Gamaliel, right? Um, and according to early church historians and biblical scholars, may have been the greatest mind of his time. Paul, your great learning has driven you mad. Remember that? So it was known that Paul was an incredible scholar. Few could outwit him, outdebate him, and exceed his knowledge of the law of scriptures. And, as evidenced by the picture that you see here, Paul speaking on Mars Hill, uh, he even knew of the Greek literature and their own poets. Wouldn't you have loved to hear him speak? That would have been great. Well, <clears throat> we want to talk about something that is critically important, the impact of the Christian church and culture on education. A look at the historic background is very instructive. The Greeks and Romans only educated the elites. The Christian church, valuing every human being equally, sought to educate everyone. Literature, primary, secondary, higher education were undeniable catalysts in the birth and development of Western civilization, and it was the Christian church that influenced and provided those educational opportunities. The early Christians adopted Greek and Roman educational models and transformed them into an early Christian culture of learning. Now, having said that, we must also say that within other cultures, the Asiatic cultures, right, the cultures that were found in places like India, some of the African nations, there was educational as well. Most of us are not coming from that culture. I'm focusing our time here primarily on education in Western civilizations. All right? So there are many contributions that 
non-Western educators have made, and I don't seek to belittle them. It's just that we're constrained by time and my very limited brain. So, let's move on. First champion, first champion of uh, education within the church was Augustine, or Augustine, depending on how you want to pronounce that. The philosophy of education in the West is founded on Augustine's teaching that, one, God is a rational being. Two, not only the human soul, but the human mind carry the image of God. And number three, God created humanity to be able to understand and govern creation. And when I say govern creation, of course, everybody's mind goes back to Genesis and the first chapters there, right? That we are to have dominion, that we are to restore and replenish the earth. Upon the foundations of faith in God, the West built a cohesive culture based on logic, language, and rational knowledge. In the medieval era, the church gave birth to the universities, an institution of learning based upon the confidence in not only the unity, but the absolute nature of truth. We don't have that confidence today. And the absence of that confidence explains the implosion of today's university into a morass of diversities lacking any moral understanding or body of knowledge. Building on Old Testament precedents, the Christian church understood education to be an essential task and responsibility. <clears throat> Not only for children and new converts, but for all members of the community. It was this culture of people, educated by the church, that established the foundations of the nation-state, parliaments, democracy, commerce, banking, and higher education. It was friars that founded Oxford and Cambridge in England. The Christian concept of education is rooted ultimately in the revelation of God and the belief that God's word is real truth, true truth, and eternal truth. In the United Kingdom, earliest university establishments were the colleges, uh, the first one, I believe, was the, uh, established by the Celtic preacher, uh, St. Illid, in A.D. 500. Oxford University was established by various religious orders. Cambridge uh, was established in 1209 by Christian leaders. St. Andrews, Scottish, Scotland's oldest university, was founded pr principally for the teaching and study of theology. The commitment of those religious founders was all over the board. But... Many of the later colleges were founded by Bible-believing Christians, which brings us to the time of the Reformation. Anybody recognize this fellow? I would have brought my uh, bobblehead doll and pointed to him, but I forgot. So, Martin Luther, who we must remember was a priest, called for the overhaul of education that had of necessities during the Dark Ages become sheltered in monasteries. He made an impassioned plea to the German aristocracy in an open letter to Christian nobility. He said this, I believe that there is no work more worthy of pope or emperor than a thorough reform of the university. John Knox, John Amos Comenius joined Luther in universalizing education with the goal of an educated civil society. And it was through the church that this educational ministry united all of Europe through one world view, which was a Christian world view. Martin Luther wrote about 500 years ago, I am much afraid that schools will prove to be a great gates of hell unless 
They diligently labor in explaining the Holy Scriptures, engraving them in the hearts of youth. I advise no one to place his child where the Scriptures do not reign paramount. Every institution in which men are not increasingly occupied with the Word of God must become corrupt. Well, clearly the Scriptures do not reign paramount in many of our public schools. And there are some that have a stronger Christian memory and liberty, like those that are in southwestern Indiana. So when we moved here, we looked carefully at our choices. We as a family felt that there was enough Christian memory to send our kids to public schools. And we joined a church that had a lot of homeschoolers. And by God's grace, you know, there is unity there. There was no fighting, there was no judging, and we're very thankful for that. My wife taught in a Christian school. Our kids were in Christian schools in Saginaw, Michigan. Were there things that we would change about our children's public education? Yes. Were there things that we would learn? Yes. Would we send our children to public schools as we know of them now? We're not certain that we would. But you may teach in a public school. And if so, praise the Lord. You may have your children in a public school. If so, praise God. And by God's grace, you are going to seek to be faithful in raising your children in a way that honors God. And you're going to make a decision that's based on your information, prayer, counsel of others. The pilgrims left England seeking religious liberty. And they went to Holland. And remember, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. Just saying. However, the pilgrims were really not happy in Holland. It wasn't the cheese. It wasn't the tulips. It was the fact that they could not raise their children in educating them themselves. Holland had come to a point where they were, their compulsory education was being driven by the state. And they knew that they, um, the children would lose not only their language, but also uh, their religious heritage. And that was their concern. It's part of the reason that drove them to the New World to establish a Bible commonwealth. Back in England, the educational system had been haphazard. Rich children were educated by tutors or members of the clergy. Poor ones were left to fend them for themselves. But the Puritans decided to try another method. The need became evident in the late 18th century and early 19th century for schools to train the children of those who did not have enough money to afford private or parochial schools. Pauper schools. Anybody ever hear of the word pauper? Pauper schools? Yes. Yeah. Pauper schools were founded to provide schooling for these children. These were funded either by townships, counties, or churches. Before long, Christians resented paying for the education of their own children while having to pay for the education of children in the pauper schools. They insisted that their children should receive a free education like the others. Pauper schools became public schools. And the curriculum was determined that no particular religion should be presented. Now, in 1642, the pilgrims 
here in Massachusetts, focused in Massachusetts, passed a law that required every household head to be responsible for the education of all their children and dependents, servants. The law required that everyone be taught to read, and if a parent failed, their child could be removed from the home. Whoa. Those Puritans were strict. Listen to this. Um, that the selectmen of every town in the several precincts and quarters where they dwell shall have a vigilant eye over their brethren and neighbors to see first that none of them shall suffer so much barbarism in any of their families as not to endeavor to teach by themselves or others their children and apprentices as much learning as may enable them perfectly to read the English tongue and knowledge of the capital laws upon penalty of 20 shillings for each neglect therein. This law had teeth. Now today on a, on a weekly, weekday basis, you'll have about, what, 50 million kids in a public school, I think. Is that right? Is that how many you have in your classroom? <laughs> Seems like that sometimes. <laughs> you can thank mandatory education laws and a robust public school system for that. But how did the United States achieve compulsory education for all that? There was a follow-up law to the 19, 1642 law. Does anybody know what the law in 1647 passed by the Puritan General Court was called? Lisa may know. Yes, it's called the Old Deluder Satan Act. Because of the trickery of Satan, they established the first compulsory education laws in the United States. Quote, it being one of the chief projects of that old deluder, Satan, to keep man from the knowledge of the scriptures, and to that end, that learning may not be buried in the grave of our forefathers, it is therefore ordered that every township within this jurisdiction, after the Lord hath increased them to be the number of 50 householders, okay, so each district with 50 households, shall then forthwith appoint one within their town to teach all such children as shall resort to him, to write and read, and is further ordered that where any town shall increase to the number of 100 families or householders, they shall set up a grammar school, the masters thereof being able to instruct you so far as they may be fitted for the university. So, the old deluder Satan Act is thought of as the nation's first compulsory education law. It was remained in the books until 1789. A year after Massachusetts became an official state, when it was incorporated into the Massachusetts Education Act. I don't think that they mentioned Satan at that time. But in the short space of 17 years, these Puritans, these pilgrims, established a complete education system from the age of six through university. 17 years. Is that amazing? But they understood the critically important nature of education. In America, the first 123 colleges and universities, including Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, were founded, funded, and flourished as educational ministries of the Christian church. Harvard was named after a Christian minister. Yale was started by clergymen. And Princeton's, located in deepest, darkest New Jersey, thank you very much, First year of class was taught by Reverend Jonathan Dickinson. Who else was another famous teacher at Princeton? Jonathan 
Edwards, yes. All right, Princeton Crest still says, De sum nume viget, which in Latin for under God she flourishes. And then there is <clears throat> Robert Owen. How did we get here? No. How did that slide get there? Delete that slide. That slide is erroneous. We should not have that slide in there. <laughs> oh, my lands. Who put this thing together? Oh, my goodness. Somebody really messed this one up. Wow, my lands. Fire the person that did this. <laughs> well, we're looking for something that's not there, obviously. <laughs> we're we're going to go backtrack here. <laughs> I was publicly school educated. So. <laughs> it shows. <laughs> Thank you, brother. <laughs> All right, the next point on your, on your handout is the Sunday school movement, the late 18th century. Again, another, another wonderful effort by the Christian population. Robert Rakes and Thomas Stock first established a Sunday school for the poor and orphan in Gloucester, England in 1780. In, in, by, 18, by 20 years, they had 200,000. And in... 1850, that had 2 million children. Sunday school. Did they have a bus program? No, they a horse and carriage program. Thank you. The Sunday schools were organized by people who found that working class children required some form of discipline. Sunday and evening schools were established to teach reading, writing, arithmetic, and catechism to the deserving poor. And enrollment was decided upon by visits to parents, nominations from subscribers, and individual student applications. Students were expected to attend school four to five hours a week, and it was the only schooling that most working-class children ever received. Although originally hailed as a great noble achievement, Sunday schools constantly struggled for survival. There was actually pressure from the churches, the Sabbatarians, to not teach writing on Sundays. There were debates raging as to whether teaching the lower classes was, in fact, a good idea. The Church of England was unable to support the schools or provide them with adequate space or funds. And so it was a lay movement. And people who had a heart to reach out to children with the gospel and to better their society started the Sunday school movement. Isn't that great? Well, consequently, the schools were funded by subscribers who were encouraged to nominate the children for enrollment. Hannah Moore, who was a famous educator, uh, writer, she actually wrote some hymns that we use, uh, held such a school in uh, about 1800, and she became even more influential with the establishment of her inexpensive repository tracts, gospel tracts. The Sunday schools caught on quickly and were effective because they were simple, became a diversion for children and a means for parents to socially elevate the family as a whole. They were also often a means of education for adults. And just like you, mom and dad, who are trying to figure out this new math and the core curriculum changes, you're learning, right? I hope. Kids bring this home and say, Mom, how do I do this? What am I ever going to do with trigonometry? Ugh. You're going to learn that all over again. 
The Sunday school also became an important hub of social interaction for a class of children and parents who were rapidly moving away from small, close-knit rural communities to urban populations. The schools catechized their children. They taught systematic Christian theology that previously they may have only received once in a while within some of the churches they attended. So, eventually, uh, the Church of England started to actively promote them uh, with facilities and finances. It's also meant a tighter control over management curriculum uh, and led to further growth. Well, that's all for today. I hope that you are encouraged, especially as we look back on how God shaped and protected and guarded the minds of four young men in Babylon to be a powerful influence upon their society, their culture, and to live in a way that was honoring and pleasing to God. Whatever your educational choices and decisions are, we as God's people need to make informed choices. And we need to be gracious with each other when we make choices that may differ. Well, next week, we start to see things go awry we start with Horace Mann. Do your homework. Look up Horace Mann. Look up John Dewey. Look at what the progressives started to do. Their influence is being seen today. As the church influence has dwindled. More on that next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your ability to maintain truth and establish righteousness that you are not impotent that you are not out of control but you have sovereign care over all of creation we thank you for the protection of our children and our little ones Lord we confess that we have not always handled our responsibility as the primary teachers and influences of our children that we have not always done that well. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would cause us to repent where we have been negligent and to pick up and to strengthen those feeble hands that we would honor you. We praise you and thank you that there is hope, that there is encouragement, that you will indeed cause your Son to be glorious in all nations. Help us to remember the words of Psalm 78 that we would teach to our children and our children's children for generations to come for your exaltation and glory. And we praise you in your son's name. Amen.